want to say this about my home. I came from a non-Christian but but moral home. We weren't anti-Christian. We thought we were Christians. And uh, so it was very moral. And uh, and I couldn't wait to leave. I could pick out every fault in my home, in my siblings. I worked on it. And, you know, it's just sort of an immature person that I was. Uh, then I went into youth ministry. And I found myself into homes, Christian homes, at least the kids were going to church, Christian homes, and suddenly I realized my parents didn't have it all wrong. In fact, they did a lot of things well. And as I realized that other families also had their dysfunctions, so I realized my family, maybe their dysfunctions weren't just out of... You don't want to measure dysfunction, do you? I mean, that's a bad thing to do. But but you just realize, oh my gosh, we weren't as bad as I thought. In fact, I remember telling my mom and dad often before they died, you know what? You done good. You look at your kids, you done good. You set a standard. And later I know my mom became a Christian and I always will continue to pray that I see my dad there too when I'm with Jesus. So I don't know what your greatest memories are, but the chances are there are some that you cherish and there are some which you'd like to overcome. I thought I'd seen it all after 10 years of youth ministry. Uh, and then I went with the Deweys and Diane Pulvermiller to Romania. And, you know, these kids, at first we call them orphans, but it's that's because it's a two-syllable word. They really are not orphans. They're abandoned children. Their parents could not feed them or did not love them and took them to a state orphanage and dropped them at the door by the hundreds of thousands in the late 80s and early 90s and just dropped them there and counted on the state to raise them with the resources that they did not have. Well, the state was filled with people, the orphanages were filled with people who wanted a government job and had no desire to supply the love and the nurture that the children so especially needed. I remember one of these children, his name was Romy, and he was probably among the shortest there, but had a personality that either what, you know, Bill Clinton could have taken politics lessons from him. He just knew how to get the best out of people and have people smile at him. Um, he was either going to be a politician or a Honda salesman. It was one of the two. And either one he would be very successful at. I remember I was walking with Romy once in the city where we were. And uh, as he was walking towards the market, he pointed to this very small, diminutive woman in front of him. And he goes, that's my mother. I, I go, okay. So we continue to walking, and, you know, and she goes into the store. We go into the store. Never talked to her. Purposely. Never said hi, mom. Never did anything like that. I thought that was a little weird. And yet, uh, he had all of these hurts inside because his mother, for whatever reason, said, I don't want you as an infant. So they did not talk. They didn't even nod at each other. And then I heard that several years later, his mother approached him and asked to re-enter his life. 
Now, he had every right to be suspicious. First of all, okay, now I'm, I'm earning an income. Why do you come now? Uh, he also said to her once, you didn't care for me the first 18 years of my life. Why am I going to let you do it now? There was a ton of anger in him and hurt, a ton of sense of rejection, a ton of, hey, you were the one who was responsible to bring me up. Instead, I wasn't just in the function. I was, I, I was in the abuse of the state orphanage system. And the stories that went on, of things that went on there, I cannot repeat publicly. Well, Romy is one of the probably more success stories. And, you know, I think that that gathering with his mother when she asked to come back into his life, he probably saw it a little bit as payback time. You know, you didn't offer me love. I'm not about ready to offer it to you. And so today, from all that I know, because I haven't been able to go in the last four years, uh, he's in his mid-twenties, early to mid-twenties, and he's closer to the people on the mission team who come for only a few weeks a year than he is to his own family that lives in the same town. He's an example, isn't he? That probably the deepest and the hardest wounds to heal are the family wounds. We can say that about a young man named Romy, but we can probably also say that about us. Even though we have uh, many fond memories, there's probably some things we would like to forget, but we, we cannot. We may have come from good families, but they were flawed homes, and, and they still show the effects. In Genesis 37 to 50, we've studied a family that is chosen by God. But it's as, about as dysfunctional as it can possibly be. When your father's name is usurper or deceiver, and that's the name he carries around until he's middle-aged. When he has over a dozen children from four birth mothers, he plays favorites among one of his wives and favorites among his sons, uh, and he's suspicious of all of his children. What would you expect from the kids? You have in Genesis 37 to 50 what I call a classic dysfunctional case study of what family life should not be. But can you believe this as you read it? We also need to be encouraged because these are the people whom God will use to do his will for eternity. What is he up to? He's God. And what we're saying is, you know, we have the choice of looking at all these things going on behind the scenes, as well as what seems to be only the, 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 the humanly visible stuff. And we only look at the human visible stuff, we miss maybe what God is doing behind. You see, he's not as visible as the dysfunctions. I mean, even sociologists can name those. They've got a book that tells you all about them. But we're not able to trace the hand of God as easily. And so as we go to this next section of Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 to 28, I, I'm, I'm taking each section, each, you know, uh, you might, might say each subtitle saying, this is what we're seeing on the outside, but this is what God may be doing behind the scenes. So here we have, the focus is on Joseph, number 11 of 12 brothers. His other uh, 10 brothers, the older ones, hate him. They want to kill him, 
But instead of killing him, they show mercy and sell him as a slave. Joseph becomes a slave in a very powerful family of Egypt, but his owner's wife attempts daily to seduce him. He's good looking. Oh, you know, tough burden to carry, isn't it, guys? Yeah. He's very good looking, and and this cougar desires him. So, um, uh, by refusing her, uh, he is deceived and he's thrown into prison because she says that he made advances on her. So while in prison, another opportunity comes where there are two dreams uh, of of people who are on on Pharaoh's staff. And he interprets those dreams. And and then uh, one of these staff members is spared because the dreams are fulfilled in three days as he predicted. And finally, two years later, one of those two, the surviving of Pharaoh's staff, remembers when he hears Pharaoh say that he had two dreams that night, remembers that, oh, there is a person in prison where I was two years ago who knows how to interpret dreams. So he wants to help Pharaoh, and he says, get this man named Joseph. Joseph comes. He appears before Pharaoh. He hears the two dreams that Pharaoh has, and he interprets them. We find out he interprets them correctly. He's talking about the human need that's going to come, but instead we need to see it as an opportunity for God. He says, in your dream, the first part of each of those two dreams is there's going to be seven years of great prosperity. That means you're going to have bumper crops. Because of that, your livestock is going to thrive. But that is going to be followed immediately by seven years of famine, and each year it'll get worse. So then Joseph steps in and he says, now, Pharaoh, this is what you need to do. Remember, he's a slave and a convict. He's got a lot of chutzpah. He says, you need to find the right man with the right plan so that all of Egypt will be ready. And uh, Pharaoh chooses Joseph. He says, is anybody more capable than you? So he gives them full authority to execute Joseph's plan that will save Egypt. And the plan is simple. Each year of the of the bumper crop years for seven years in a row, they retain 20%, sort of like a tax that Pharaoh collects. And that grain is stored. And they do it for seven years, those first seven years, so it can be used in the seven following disastrous years. Now, this may not make sense to you in today's sort of economy. Uh, with grain, you can't write an IOU like we do in our government. With grain, it has to be stored, okay? We know how much grain is there. Why? Because we know how much grain is there. We can measure it. You, you, you can't say there'll be this much in five years. So they know exactly how much grain it is. And then the famine begins, and we read in the end of chapter 41, all the countries come to Egypt to buy grain. From who? From Joseph. Because the famine was severe in all the world, meaning the whole Middle East as we know it. Uh, so the seven years begin and the surrounding countries come to Egypt because word gets around. They didn't have Facebook, but they, there's grain in Egypt. There's grain in Egypt. Lo and behold, among those that come for help, it says in chapter 42, verse 3, Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. Which ten do you think it was? Which ten? 
You see, what's going on here is the plot thickens. I love this I, when I read a story. And I, of course, I read it every year, so I know how it ends, okay? But, but I love it because the plot is thickening. And what we're seeing here on the human end is the tables are turned. But there's a spiritual end. There's a heavenly end. And so uh, uh, every foreigner has to go into a government office and to appear before government officials to gain permission to buy grain because it is stored by the government. No private enterprise anymore there. And one day, understand what is happening here, it is at least 20 years after his brother sold him. He is at least 37, maybe older. So one day, 20 years after his brother sell him, Joseph is in this room and he hears a certain dialect. (gasps) That's Hebrew. That's the language of my brothers. And it's a very small known language. I just have my brothers, okay? These are the only people who speak it. About 70 people in the world. It's a dialect he can understand. So he hears that familiar dialect, and he understands it's from his extended family. He looks, and he finds out that the words that he is hearing is coming from his own brothers. The tables have turned. Over 20 years later, Joseph had a dream where he, uh, earlier, he had a dream where he envisions his older brothers and his parents bowing down to him. And at that time, his brothers hate him for it, among many other things, because he was quite obnoxious, and they get rid of him. And now read verses 6 and 7 with me. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they did what? They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. They bowed down to him. You see, these now same brothers are now before their brother. They uh, they are talking, or uh, their brother, who is talking Egyptian. Uh, more than that, he looks like an Egyptian. He's wearing fine clothes. He speaks good Egyptian, uh, talks like an Egyptian, looks like an Egyptian. i got to do this. <laughs> and he walks like an Egyptian. Okay, 1985, the bangles. If you're under 30, you don't know that, okay? <laughs> I've been waiting nine weeks to get that out, Okay. <laughs> So uh, uh, there he is. They can't recognize him because he's in fine clothing. He's wearing jewelry. He has the uh, uh, the Pharaoh's seal on, on his ring. Um, he he is uh, what else? He's wearing the black wig and eye makeup. Yes, they did wear eye makeup. The guys. So they have no idea who he is. Plus, he's speaking perfect Egyptian. Uh, And what what is going on here is he knows exactly what they're saying. They don't know who he is. Perfect situation. I I couldn't have invented it any, any easier. And there they are bowing down to him. They are ragged. They are dirty. They are smelly after their long journey, and he is elegant as a man in authority who has earned uh, earned every bit of his wealth and respect. God has fulfilled the dream. That he gave to Joseph 20 years earlier. More than that, Joseph is powerful and his brothers are in a pitiful situation. Would you just pretend for a moment that you're Joseph? How would you handle it? Can I tell you what? Every time I read this, I'm going to milk this for all I can get. There is something about nonviolent payback that I love. 
And, and Joseph has a great mind because he's thinking just like me. Uh, he does milk it. But, you know, and, and that's on the human end. We'll see what God's intentions are as we continue to go through uh, the next eight chapters. But he, he does begin to play with it. So we see a human response coming out of him. And it says, though all, in verse 8, although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. He looked so different and it had been 20 years. Uh, so they do not recognize who they are speaking to, but Joseph knows them and he understands every word they are saying to each other in Hebrew. But to continue the uh, deception, he gets a translator. He gets a translator. Now we learned this trick in Romania. Diane and, and, and many of the others learned the language very quickly, uh, much more quickly than I do. And so they would have a translator, but they would know when they were being sworn at. They know those words. For those of you who learned Spanish, you don't get those in your Spanish class, but you get them by going to, you know, Mexico. So they knew them. They knew when the kids were smiling and, and cursing them. Well, this is the exact situation uh, that Joseph is in. He knows everything his brothers are saying. So then it says, he remembered his dreams and he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. Now understand what it means here to be turning the tables because what is it or what is one of the reasons why Joseph was thrown into the pit? Because he spied on them and told father what was going on with the 10 brothers. Now he's before them and says, you're spies. They're not, but he accuses them of it. And they replied, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. They plead with him. And when Joseph was in the pit, what did he do to his brothers? He pleaded with them. Guys, don't kill me. I'm your brother. I'll learn from this. They are now pleading with him. They've bowed down. They have the same accusation against them as they made against him. And now they're pleading with him two decades later. And then something amazing comes out of them in verse 13. They start to give their family background as almost their defense. And they give an amazing fact, which, you know, usually if you're being questioned, you only ask, you only answer what you've been asked. You don't give more information, but they seem to let it all out. Uh, they gave more facts, more than were necessary to buy food. They say we're, we're 10 of 12 brothers. One is still at home, meaning Benjamin, daddy's new favorite. And one is no more. Why did they bring that up 20 years later? Hmm. Could it be they cannot forget it? Could it be that there's some things going on inside of us that we'd love to forget, but we can't? More than that, they know that they're the cause of one of their brothers being no more. Well, Joseph had been thrown down into that pit. And so Joseph says, let's see, I've called them spies like they called me. I've uh, pleaded, uh, uh, they pleaded with me like I pleaded with them. They throw me into a pit, so I know I'll throw them into prison. So he throws them into prison for three days and lets them think about it. And I'm sure they're stewing, you know, as they're talking to one another there in prison. And uh, 
And so he keeps him there in suspense and turmoil, not knowing what he's going to do for three days. And then on the third day, it says, Joseph says to them, verse 18, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. What he's saying, not giving away too much, is he uses the same word Elohim that he used on Pharaoh. The God of Israel, not the gods of Egypt. But to prove their story, he gives them a plan. And the plan is very simple. One out of ten will stay in Egypt while the nine return with the grain that they purchased. And if they are telling the truth, then they will return with the eleventh brother that they claim is still in Canaan. Seems like a great plan. Whenever I hear a great plan, I say, okay, let's negotiate. Uh, That's a wonderful suggestion. Can I give you some of my thoughts? Uh, I love your options. Can we discover if there, and, and explore if there's any other options? You see, uh, who's holding the cards? Who's holding all the power? It's Joseph. And so this was not a suggestion. It was not an option. They did not have the freedom to negotiate, but they do more. This was the plan. They had to do it. Now look at their interpretation of why this is happening to them in verse 21. Then they said to one another in Hebrew, in Hebrew, Surely we are being punished for our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we did not listen. This is why distress has come upon us. For 20 years, they've not been allowed to talk about it, even among each other, because they're afraid daddy will hear. For 20 years, they've kept this secret, probably, you know, before they left that pit, said, okay, this is it, it's done with it. There's a lot of movies that do the same thing, okay? We're keeping this secret, we're going to go to the grave with this secret. You just never do. Um... And so what they're saying is, is this is God's divine payback for the pain we caused our brother 20 years earlier. This may shock some of you because of what's been presented to you about the Bible. But one of the names of God is my judge, Sophet, from which the Greek eventually emerged into Sophia which was more wisdom. Sophet, we must never forget that our God, who, yes, loves us dearly, he is and always will be judged because he is perfectly righteous. Our God does discipline, and we do suffer human consequences for our actions. And so when we say, okay, well, you know, it's, you know, I understand that for my actions, but Jesus once again had to raise the bar. Everywhere he goes, he raises the bar. He says, it's not just your actions, it's even the thoughts that you have. I'm toast. I'm toast. You might be fine. I'm burnt toast. I can't get through a day without those thoughts. And God is the righteous judge, will always be our judge, even though he continues to love us. 
And Jesus makes it even harder to think that we're good people or certainly not, uh, 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 we're certainly not righteous people. So what is going on here? What we're going, what is going on here is we understand that these men finally let it out. They finally confessed to one another that what we did was wrong and we know it and we haven't been able to forget it for two decades or more. In a group this size, it's gotta be true. In a group this size, some of you are feeling like Joseph this morning. You've been treated abusively by those who should have protected you. And the wounds are festering. It might have been in the home, the hardest family, uh, hardest family, or the hardest wounds to cure are the family ones. Um, might have been at school. Someone was supposed to protect you and did not. Might have been at church. We know it happens way too often. And some of us may be walking around like the ten brothers, carrying around our guilt for so long, and we've never really brought it to God and to those whom we have hurt. This is where the healing begins for Joseph. At this moment, when he hears his brother's heartfelt guilt for selling him to, into slavery. And also it is at this moment that the healing begins with them confessing their guilt to one another. You know, they had to travel five, six months to have the, you know, you might say outside of their, uh, uh, their locality so that they, as they looked at each other and the pressure was put on them, they could finally let out what they've been feeling for two decades. Now, Joseph gives orders that they're to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in the sack, and to give him provisions for the journey. Uh, and, and so one is left there and, and stays in prison while the rest go back. And you won't believe what, you know, uh, you won't believe what daddy says. It's just, but that's next week. So, uh, uh, and so nine now go back and one stays behind. But here's the idea behind. You see, healing is not just one moment. There might be a moment of lucidity where the light comes on, but the healing that needs to occur in our hearts is not just you say, oh, I recognize it. I'm fine now. Humanity, you're just not that built that way. You're not wired that way. Healing is a journey. And in the next eight chapters, perhaps another 20 plus years, Joseph and his brothers, this journey is described of how they begin to heal. And until the very end, the brothers are still very suspicious of Joseph. They still have, you know, they have to do everything necessary to continue their lives. You know, they have to make the trip back. They have to eat the grain. They provide for their families. They have to then come back to Egypt. They have to do all these things, live normally. But in the meantime, what's happening behind the scenes is God, uh, scenes is God is inside and he's, he's doing his work in them. Let me just speak about two intentions that you need to think about from the passage this morning. What could God possibly be doing 
through all this misery and distress and suspicion and guilt and, and hurts going on. How do you let healing begin in you? In, in a, you know, if you sense that you've been wronged in your life, especially by the people that you have trusted, mom and dad, brothers and sisters, teachers, pastors, others, how does the healing begin? You've been wronged in your life. It's hard to look at people and consider them people of trust once again. How do you begin to do that? How do you stop the cycle of saying it's not going to happen in the next generation? Abraham deceived two kings. Great, great granddad, okay? Um, Isaac, grand, uh, great uh, granddad, okay? Isaac's the granddad. He favored one of the two twins over the other. Jacob deceives every family member his entire life. You see how it's getting worse? Not better? If you come from a long line of violence, addiction, abuse, sexual bondage, law-breaking, or a whole host of other things, I want you to know that it's not just that God loves you, but God empowers you and frees you not to be chained to the previous generation. Not even to be chained to what you feel trapped in. He doesn't just love you, but he empowers you. What you see in your bloodline is not necessarily your destiny. Why do I say that? Because before God, trusting in his forgiveness granted by Jesus Christ on the cross, you know that whatever you've done, it can be forgiven. Not that there won't be consequences, but you can be forgiven by God and you can approach those people you've hurt and you can ask forgiveness from them. More than that, trusting in the power to overcome what you feel chained to. Know that the power of the resurrection is the power that resides in you. So if you find yourself in that sort of a position, have you ever just stood before God, you and God alone, and just said three simple words. It stops here. Doesn't mean it'll stop there. But you determine before God, this will not be how my spouse suffers because it stops here. I won't continue to be chained to this because it stops here. My children will see no evidence of what I've been through because it stops here. It stops here. And there's a second intention. Uh, it's not just for Joseph, but for many of us. You know, last week we focused on Joseph doing the right thing by saying, uh, Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. And he was saying it so often, giving God the honor uh, that uh, even Pharaoh was saying, Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. It was a, a perfect balance. And, and so uh, he said it so often that that he actually believed that you know, it, it was just sharing his heart that Joseph, in the midst of injustice, gives his whole heart to God. He still continues to trust in God's goodness to him, even though there's no evidence of it. God has his whole heart. 
He has his whole heart. Max Lucado, who makes me cry about the love of God, put it another way. He says, God not only wants your whole heart, he wants your heart whole. In other words, he wants you to begin to heal so that the deepest ache inside of you that maybe, you know, maybe Joseph's life sort of arises and emerges as you read about Joseph. He wants you to begin to heal and to understand that wounds that are two decades old or even longer. The journey to healing is one God wants you on because he wants your heart whole. Not, not just buried, but restored. And both come because of the great God that Joseph comes to know and trust in 20 years of confusing, hurtful circumstances. Have you dished it out? Have you been one who's taken it? Family wounds are the hardest to heal. But why don't you say, it's time. Let's start to heal now. Let's pray. Some of you maybe need prayer this morning because you're carrying around the guilt of Joseph's brothers. I want you to know feeling guilty is not a bad thing if you're guilty. Feeling guilty might be just what you need to understand that you've been a victimizer. And God is at work letting it emerge so you can deal with it before him and those that you've hurt. Father, for the guilty this morning, help them to seek your forgiveness and the forgiveness of those they have hurt. Not just to ask you for forgiveness, which you freely grant, but to step into action to heal the relationships that are so wounded. And Father, there's another set of people here today, maybe even larger in number, far easier to identify. It's far easier to know that we've been hurt rather than we've hurt others. They're not carrying around enormous guilt, but enormous hurt. Aroused by the story of Joseph. Lord, help them know that you are in this with them. And that you want each of their hearts whole again. Not hiding, but healed. Father, if my explanation of your word has helped them in any way, I pray that it's really been the Bible that has gotten to them. That they let the Bible get to them. That they got it because of what they heard from the Bible. And I pray it will lead them to appropriate action. So that the Bible gets them. Now, with just nobody looking up, but 
If you're carrying around enormous hurt or enormous guilt, and you'd like me to pray for you this week, would you just raise your hand? Thank you. Yes, thank you. Let the healing begin. Lord, we pray this in your great and marvelous name. And all of God's people said, Amen.